Planning to pursue a degree in healthcare? Discover what the International Medical University has to offer at the IMU Virtual Open Day, including scholarships and bursaries with up to 100%. In partnership with globally renowned universities, IMU is Malaysia's first private medical university awarded the self-accreditation status by MQA and a Satara six-star rating for two consecutive years. See you online this August 15th, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Register at imu.edu.my slash open day. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. Right. Um, normally, I'm quite happy to go along with Matt's meandering introductions. Um, but this time I'm completely distracted by the robot cockroach in the title for today's episode. And apparently there's some stuff about a really impressive bridge, some battery technology, and billionaires in space. But none of that really matters. Matt, are you, are you going to make me wait until we get to this story about the robot cockroach? Hey, Richard. Well... I think this is what you call clickbaiting the trap. And uh, yeah, so you are going to have to wait. I'm very sorry. Yeah, that's an awful joke mm-hmm. to start with. But um, I really do need to talk about the batteries first. You know, we talk about a lot of smart technology uh, on the show. We're talking about a lot of smart technology today. And we often talk about improvements in battery technology, especially. But this story is slightly different because it's one of those one man in his garage type stories and his invention may actually change the way large power storage devices are made just from what started as a simple observation and a bit of tinkering in a garage in brisbane i hope this isn't one of those you know free energy from water kind of stories well i think we're away off the commercialization of water powered batteries you know they will remain something that's only possible at a municipal scale And I think we've talked about reservoirs and pools being used as giant batteries before. In fact, a couple of years ago, a plan was floated that would turn the iconic Hoover Dam into a giant battery. Uh, But you can Google that one. I'm not going to talk about that today. So we keep making these advances in battery technology, not just in terms of the cell technology, but uh, in terms of all of the the peripheral technology around it as well. So, for example... Mm. An Israeli company called StoreDot unveiled a fast charging technology this year that will charge electric vehicle batteries in five minutes. So charging times have been one of the major consumer impediments to switching from petrol to electric power because you fill up your petrocarbon vehicle in five minutes flat. But EVs can take hours, even on the best fast chargers. And Mm. that reduces the attraction and the utility of the vehicles over longer distances. So with this story, uh, Dominic Spooner, the founder of an Australian startup called Volta, had a, again, sorry, light bulb moment when he looked at the casings surrounding the battery cells. And don't you groan at me like that. (laughs) Is this another one of your boring stories? Come on. Well, the important stories often are a bit boring. That's why we get the robot cockroach later. So companies like like Samsung are spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on R&D to make better batteries. 
but hardly anyone bothers to think about the casings that those fuel cells are actually housed in. They tend to be big, bulky, and heavy because the cells are usually bolted or fused to the casing. So the whole thing has to be discarded when the uh, batteries become less efficient. So there's a lot of waste. There's a lot of environmental pollution. On the episode a few weeks ago about uh, flying cars, we talked about the inherent problem of electric-powered aircraft because there's that trade-off between range and weight. So Volta's invention is one way to pack more power into that power-to-weight ratio without needing to improve on the batteries themselves. You're telling me this is a story about it being a better box? Yeah, it's a better box. Now, I know that's not exciting. The (laughs) company has found a way to reduce the number of components needed to link those cells together and deliver the power. And that can reduce the size of the casings by up to 18%. That's a massive change. So, you know, more importantly, the company doesn't weld the cells into place. So that opens the possibility of swapping out damaged or depleted cells. So potentially extending the life of the batteries in electric vehicles, which is another barrier to purchasing. There is a built-in expiration date for the product. That is the battery, and that battery is what makes the vehicles a lot more expensive than the petrol rivals. So this actually could help to bring down the the cost of the electric cells? Well, that's the hope. So lighter weight materials, fewer components, it definitely opens up a lot more reuse potential. So we've spoken in the past about ways to extend the life of EV batteries. Uh, One example is placing them in uh, home and domestic situations as backup batteries. But that largely relies on taking the entire uh, rack of cells out and using the entire battery. As the cells in Volta's batteries aren't welded into place, they can be removed and they can be reused in other configurations, as well as being more easily recycled because you can access the components. The casings themselves can simply be refurbished and fitted with new cells and then used in another vehicle. Do you think Volta is planning to be the next Tesla? I don't think we have to worry about Dominic Spooner's tweets upsetting the US Securities Commission anytime (laughs) soon. Uh, At the moment, Volta has just a couple of staff, so Spooner and another engineer, I think. They've just had a grant from the Australian government that will help them to commercialize the product. But they're actually pretty happy in their Brisbane garage. And the plan is to license the technology to other manufacturers. And that makes perfect sense because one of the reasons is that they want to reduce the environmental impact of fuel cell technologies. Mm. If they kept that tech to themselves, they're not really helping to solve the problem as much as they are just competing with manufacturers who might make it worse. And it means, of course, that they can continue to explore this niche rather than worrying about developing the cell technology as well. Okay, um, very interesting stuff. Uh, We're staying with smart technology for the next story. Uh, Regular listeners to the show will know that uh, you're famous for your tenuous bridges from one story to the next. Um, How are you going to make the next leap? With a literal bridge uh, in Amsterdam. So this is a a smart city story. Uh, We sometimes get the wrong idea when we talk about smart cities. Uh, We tend to focus on electric cars and buses, drones, ID harvesting surveillance cameras. In reality, it's actually about making sure that every component, especially the architecture and the infrastructure, 
are smart and adaptive and that they bring some tangible benefit to the neighborhood in some way. So we often get the idea as well with smart cities that the old has to make way for the new. So that smart city design means tearing down old architecture or infrastructure, but it doesn't have to be an either or argument. The best systems uh, like the MX3D bridge that we're talking about use the new to complement and enhance the existing structure of the city. I mean, need I remind you, Matt, that... um you know, the last show we, we spoke about tractors and excavators. Now we're talking about bridges. Are, are, are you just trying to break some kind of record for getting rid of listeners? This story's fun. The bridge is 3D printed. Uh, and I have uh, an albeit tenuous personal connection to this. So I came across uh, the MX3D bridge because one of my oldest friends, uh, an old school friend, is involved in the project. He works for Autodesk in Switzerland, and the company helped on the project with some of the software and visualizations. So I I, see. Yes. Uh, So I recently saw my friend, hello, Kian, by the way, uh, blogging about uh, one of the projects he's involved with. So it turned out to be this. It's a 3D printed steel pedestrian bridge that spans one of the canals in the heart of the uh, city's heritage district. Known as the MX3D Bridge, it's uh, 12 meters long, and it took around six months to print. Now, I don't know a lot about bridge building, but that seems about the shortest time I can imagine uh, building a bridge taking outside of playing Urban Planner in The Sims. Uh, so you mean it was actually printed on site, like over the canal? Well, I wish, but I imagine that would entail blocking the canal for several months. So the individual pieces were created by the company MX3D, which specializes in industrial and architectural 3D printing. So they use uh, construction grade materials to print with. And the parts were then trucked and assembled on site. So we've talked about similar methods before for modular building construction. The units are printed off-site and then delivered and bolted together. Okay, so speed aside, what advantages are there to 3D printing rather than just building a bridge? Well, obviously, it's way cooler. Obviously. uh, Yeah, and 3D printing does need some cools. Uh, Speed, as you mentioned, uh, but additive manufacturing processes are often much more resource efficient. Fewer waste materials are created, and the materials that are created can often be recycled and reused more effectively. Many industrial 3D printing processes also use less water and overall are more labor and energy efficient. So they can significantly reduce the carbon and emissions footprint that are required to create a new building or structure. But another really important is the aesthetic one. In that 3D printing offers more possibilities and variations in in terms of the form. Yeah, you know, you can really let your imagination fly in terms of that aesthetic component and Mm. you can do it without compromising the structural integrity of the thing that you're making so it's allowed the mx 3d bridge to be really futuristic it actually reminds me of some of the scenery in the aliens trilogy movies so yeah it's uh, very geiger-esque no absolutely you know there's a lot of arcs and swooshes but at the same Mm. time you know it blends into the surroundings and it kind of complements the landscape 
Whereas, you know, often we're used to smart city developments that don't blend into the more historic neighborhoods that mm. they occupy. So the hope is that this will become a new landmark for visitors interested in both architecture and smart city design. But interestingly, the MX3D bridge is actually a literal stopgap. It's going to remain in place for about two years while the original bridge is being renovated. Uh Okay, then where does the smart part come from? Well, they've attached uh, more than a dozen sensors to the bridge. So these will monitor things like the strain, the movement, vibration. Uh, they'll monitor temperature changes across the structure as people pass over it and, of course, uh, how it reacts to different weather changes. This data will be fed into a real-time digital model of the bridge. So this is the part that my friend Kian worked on. Interestingly, and this is one of the amazing things about our connected world, the information for those visualizations is first fired to servers in Toronto, in Canada, which is, of course, thousands of kilometers away uh, from the, uh, the the people operating the bridge in Amsterdam, and it's uh, shared with stakeholders across Europe and around the world. It's a fairly small project. I mean, it's a pedestrian bridge. How useful is that data that it generates going to be? Well, obviously on its own, not amazingly. So the bridge is kind of a, a proof of concept. The idea is to mm. show how it can be used and see how suitable the whole methodology is for scaling up. In terms of this single project, you could, you know, you get a better idea of how the bridge is being used, the kind of uh, stresses it faces. The visualization component means that the engineers in a control room can check it at any time and they can sort through various accumulations uh, and, and categories of data. You know, there was the uh, famous or infamous case of the Millennium Bridge in London that uh, had to be closed and renovated almost as soon as it was open to pedestrians because <laughs> the designers hadn't factored in the swaying that was created when crowds of walkers crossed it at similar walking speed. So it created these waves that actually affected the structural integrity of the bridge. And that created waves that caused it to sway uh, very uncomfortably. Yeah. Um, so it can help to check for problems or stresses that might not be apparent during a, a physical check or an inspection. Yeah, and that could help uh, avoid disasters like the one we saw in Miami recently or something like the Highland Towers disasters in Malaysia, which, of course, can result in catastrophic loss of life. But also the simple scale. When you have a smart downtown ecosystem, you can start to map the interactions between structures, decide whether your infrastructure has been put in the right place. As I said, this bridge is temporary, so in theory, you could take a structure like this and tweak the design a bit and move it to somewhere else. So that feedback from the data can help to make urban planning and design more responsive, more dynamic, and of course, a lot more flexible. All right, let's take a short break. Uh, and when we come back, robot cockroaches, or somebody is going to get muted for the rest of the show. Right? You hearing me? Huh? Yeah. You hear me? Yeah, I got it. All right. Here we go. You're listening to uh, Matt Splitting here on BFM 89.9. Building Future Malaysia, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. 
BFM 89.9, the business station. This is Matt Splained here. Uh, my name is Rich Bradbury. Um, now, there's a carnival atmosphere on this week's Matt Splained. Carnival, yes. Uh, what's the cause of all of this jollity? During the break, Matt promised, 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 I'll say it three times, that our next story would finally be the robot cockroaches. I don't know why, but this story makes me happy. Happy, <laughs> I'll say it three times, happy. And <laughs> Cockroaches aren't usually something that makes me smile. So especially as we had a week of flying cockroaches uh, in my home about a month ago. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. Eventually we had to stuff mats under the front and kitchen doors to keep them keep them out. One night I actually killed four of them that had made the mad dash from the garden to the living room. Awful oh no. horror movie oh stuff. No. But robot makers have long been trying to copy insects, right? Well, yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's much easier to build a robot that has a lot of legs and a horizontal body than it is to try and replicate, you know, bipedal humans standing upright. So you've probably seen the scary looking footage of the New York City RoboDog built by Boston Dynamics. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that goes by the uh, friendly name of DigiDog. But of course, this was a, a bad time for a police department accused of brutality to introduce what looks like some hunter killer from the Terminator franchise. Even though the auto canines are intended for tasks like inspecting smoldering fires or going into situations that are too dangerous for first responders, the optics of one of them wandering around housing areas in New York was a bit too hard for many residents and local politicians to stomach. So unfortunately, the RoboDog has been mothballed. All right, back to the cockroach, please. Okay, um, for all their supposed power, a lot of robots are actually really fragile, especially the small ones. And they're really terribly expensive. As anyone who has stood with a small child uh, in the glassware or china department of a store will know, fragile and expensive are two of the worst combinations imaginable. Uh, cockroaches, on the other hand, are, as evidenced by the flying varmints that I chased around my living room, steadfastly refuse to die unless you really force them to with a, a heady <laughs> brew of uh, chemicals and brute force. So researchers at uh, Berkeley, California, have created a small stamp-sized robot that is nearly as strong, fast, and resilient as our Blatterdean buddies. Exactly how resilient? Well, amazingly, it can bear up to a million times its own weight. What? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, that tops out actually only around 60 kilos because the, the robot uh, weighs around uh, a tenth to a, a half a gram. But in the proof of concept video, a researcher actually treads on one with a force of around 55 kilos and it just scuttles off afterwards. Uh, and it moves at a, a speed of uh, around 20 of its own body lengths per second. And its beauty, if you want to call it that, is in its simplicity. It actually looks like a tiny table that looks a bit like a cockroach. Uh, it, it's not insect-like in the sense that it has lots of legs. Its body is a single piece of uh, piezoelectric material, and its legs are a couple of thin platforms that span its width. So presumably you apply current to it and, and then it moves. Yeah, uh, as alternating current is applied to it, the metal contracts and expands. So basically it wriggles and that wriggling propels it. It's really weird to watch them on the, the video because it, it does scurry around like an insect. Uh, 
Currently, it has to be tethered to its power source, but the team is developing a battery to power it and is trying to fit it with sensors that will allow it to go into very tight spots and check for gas leaks. So it could Uh also, yeah, so it could be used again in disasters like the uh, Miami condo collapse to search for survivors in places that you just can't send rescuers or something that may be too deep for a rescue dog to detect or too unstable to start sending probes down. So the team hopes that at some point they'll be able to make the devices more autonomous, uh, at the very least make them capable of uh, negotiating their own way around obstacles. But who knows? In the future, maybe one of these machines will lead a cockroach uprising against mankind. Uh, Hmm. You know, at the very least, it's enough of a plot for a Sharknado-style franchise. Now, um, I I know you've got to talk about, and you will be talking about, space, right? Right, like right now? Yeah, so from robot cockroaches to uh, billionaires. um, Oh! I know, that's a cheap shot. Um, I know that a, a lot of people have been underwhelmed by the recent billionaire flights of fancy into the inner reaches of space. So the flights, uh, Richard Branson on the Virgin Galactic on the 11th of July, Jeff Bezos on Blue Origin's New Shepard this week, the 20th of July, were, I'm happy to say, both successful. But given the media buildup, I think a lot of people were disappointed by the duration of the flights. In both cases, the space company patrons were only in space for a few minutes, enough for them to experience zero G, but in both instances, the flights seemed to take less time than the countdown to launch. So would you say they failed in terms of spectacle? Well, especially with Bezos stepping out of his uh, capsule inexplicably wearing a cowboy hat, which just has to be one of the oddest things I've seen in a long time. (laughs) Um, uh, Bezos' launch was actually the more nail-biting, though, because he was sitting in a tiny capsule on top of essentially a lot of explosives. So you can Google the reasons for Blue Origin and New Shepard's anthropomorphic design yourselves, but it seems to largely come down to physics and maybe some cost-saving measures. Uh, There seemed a a much more palpable sense of danger with this one, rightly or wrongly. Mm. And there was actually a a lot more theater in the uh, Blue Origin tube landing back on its touchpad uh, than there was for its manned capsule coming down on the parachute. Uh, Perhaps as well because the company didn't share the same in-capsule live stream footage that uh, Branson's team did. So it really just was a case of watching a tiny dot disappear and then reappear and hit the ground. Mm. Whereas we got to see Branson floating around in space, which made it feel, you know, a a lot more real, a lot more visceral. But you didn't think the Virgin Galactic launch had as much drama? Not in terms of anticipation, because it took off pretty much like a normal plane. And, you know, that makes sense because Branson is an airplane guy. Uh, His craft piggybacked, or, or joeyed if you prefer, on a carrier craft, And when it reached the right altitude, it detached and uh, the craft itself looks like a plane too, soared off into what the uh, US considers space, but the rest of the world doesn't quite. So most companies accept the uh, definition of the Kármán line, which is 100 kilometers above the mean sea level as being space. But uh, NASA and the US military define it as roughly 15 kilometers lower. Uh, Mm. I'll be honest, I don't think it really matters in terms of achievement. Uh, And then, of course, Branson's plane ship came back down and landed on a runway, just like a regular aircraft. 
Branson's flight, I think, definitely seemed more like a pleasure cruise, which, you know, it makes sense. That's essentially what Virgin Galactic is designed to be, mm-hmm. space tourism. Blue Origin had much more of that sense of rough and ready and proper space travel about it. Yeah. Um, what for you was the highlight of the launches? Uh, I think for me it had to be that Blue Origin took up Wally Funk, uh, an 82-year-old who was selected by NASA and was trained as an astronaut in the early 1960s. Unfortunately, NASA cancelled the program and none of the 15 women in it made it into space with the agency. And, you know, that's a real shame. And while this doesn't right one of history's wrongs, it does seem to have brought a great deal of joy to one individual. Mm. So, you know, it really was great to see Wally exit the Capitol, punching the air. Now, there's still a debate and a question of just what is this for? Absolutely. The idea of opening space up to tourist flights does seem a little hard to get a grip on, especially given the environmental cost. So we started this episode talking about battery casings that would make electric vehicles more green, and we end with spacecraft burning lots of fossil fuels. And as we've commented on before, with some of the billionaire space programs, there's an element of, this planet's dying, let's go live on another one. And Bezos especially has faced a lot of calls to fix Amazon's problems on this planet following the, the launch, especially given the conditions that a lot of the company's workers actually are working in. So Mm. I do have mixed feelings about some of the private space companies. But at the same time, you know, we're seeing an increasing militarization and nationalism creeping into national space programs. And if space isn't just the preserve of national agencies, then I think, or at least I hope, that it will dilute that militarization trend, if only a little bit. But most of all, you know, it's a symbol of how far space travel has come. You know, we can now seriously imagine sending Matt Damon to live on Mars. Uh, We can imagine long-term habitats on the moon. And of course, we can send an 80-year-old into space to realise a lifetime's dream. Absolutely. Thanks for that, Matt. Thank you. My pleasure as ever. Now, you can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at CultureMatt. You can also head over to CulturePop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about CulturePop and its consulting services. And if you missed any part of this show, don't forget you can download the podcast a little bit later on, or you can listen back to it using the BFM app, which is available at the Apple App Store or Google Play. For BFM 89.9, I'm Rich Bradbury. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.